That's the gospel according to Luke chapter 14, beginning with verse 25 and concluding with verse 33. Verse 25. Now large crowds were traveling with him, and he turned and said to them, Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even life itself cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not first sit down and estimate the cost to see whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build, was not able to finish. Or what king going out to wage war against another king will not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? If he cannot, then, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for the terms of peace. So therefore... None of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all your possessions. I've noticed that often, but not always, Jesus has some very subversive things to say in the Gospels. And what I mean by that is, you have a group of people that have a particular way of doing life in a particular way of looking at the world and thinking about God. And oftentimes what you see is Jesus telling them that they have it all backwards. Just earlier in this chapter, Jesus is at a banquet that's being hosted by a Pharisee. And if you were giving a banquet in first century Palestine... Who showed up to that banquet was very important because it was a reflection of your importance within that given community. If the right people showed up to your banquet, then that meant that you were an important person. So you wanted to invite the right people and you wanted the right people to show up. And Jesus says, don't do that. When you throw a banquet, don't invite your friends, invite the poor, the lame, and the blind. And that was just as scandalous then as it would be today. He was saying, you've got it completely backwards. You're not looking at it in the right light. Well, now we have Jesus and he is journeying to Jerusalem. He is going to the place where he will be crucified. And he knows that this is what he is doing. It is likely that none in this crowd understand that. It is very likely that many of the people who are following him at this point have this expectation that when Jesus reaches the city... He's going to over 
overthrow the temple authorities. He is going to become king and he is going to subdue Rome. And then these people who are following him might have the expectation that they will be privileged people once he establishes his kingdom. The kingdom that Daniel prophesied about in chapter 2, filling the whole earth. And at this point, Jesus turns around at this crowd and he cracks the whip. He says to them, first, whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even life itself cannot be my disciple. Now, we've looked at this verse several times over the past few years. I've preached from it. I think Kyle Logan was here and preached from this text, and I think Bill has alluded to it as well. So I think we know by now But when the Lord uses the word hate here, of course, he does not mean to look on with disdain or to treat maliciously. He means that your primary allegiance has to be changed. The impulses that we have to love our parents and to love our brothers and sisters are not contemptible. They are good but they can be impediments to us entering the kingdom of heaven if they prevent us from following Jesus Christ. He is the master. And then he says something incredible. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now, the commentaries that I've read, the commentators that I've looked at, seem to be in an agreement when they say that to a first century Jew, this was not just a figure of speech like it is to us today. When Jesus is saying you must carry your cross, they would have understood what that meant. They would have understood that he's saying you must live as people who have been condemned to death. In other words, if you're living like that, certain things are not going to be very important to you, like your social status and stockpiling possessions, getting as many toys as you can. If you're truly living like one who is condemned to death, like one who is carrying the cross, your life is going to have a brand new focus. It's going to be seriously adjusted. He's telling the crowd that they must do this. Then verse 28 through verse 32 He gives the example of a tower and of a king waging war. And it's the same basic formula that we're being confronted with here. If you are embarking on a demanding enterprise, you had better estimate the cost accurately and honestly. You had better estimate your resources accurately and honestly. Because if you miscalculate, it will end in shame and embarrassment. And again, our family connections 
and our worldly possessions might help to advance us in this age, but they are inadequate resources to bring us into the kingdom of heaven. And then he rounds this passage off with verse 33. So therefore, none of you can become my disciples if you do not give up all your possessions. Now, different scholars have had different things to say about this verse. Joel B. Green who wrote a very good New Testament commentary on Luke, seems to suggest that when Jesus said this, at least in its immediate context, he was not referring to a potential reality. In other words, he wasn't saying merely, you must be willing to part with all that you have in order to be my disciples, but he was actually saying that this is a defining characteristic of a disciple, someone who has left everything to follow Jesus Christ. And he doesn't say whether the same implications would hold true for us in the 21st century, but he says, at least in its immediate context, that's what Jesus is referring to when he's talking to this large crowd following him. N.T. Wright has this to say about the passage. The same is true of possessions. Many of Jesus' followers then and now have owned houses and lands and have not felt compelled to abandon them. But being prepared to do so is the sign that one has understood the seriousness of the call to follow Jesus. Any of us at any time might be summoned to give up everything quite literally and respond to a new emergency situation. If, we, if we're not ready for that, we are like the tower builder or warmonger who haven't thought through what they are really about. So the way that N.T. Wright applies it to us is to say that that is our situation, that we need to be willing to part with everything that we possess in order to be true disciples of Christ. Now, let me just lay my cards out on the table this morning so that I don't misrepresent myself. If we are supposed to get rid of everything that we have and live exactly the way that Jesus and his disciples lived in the few years prior to his crucifixion, then I have to be honest with you, I do not qualify for discipleship. I live in a spacious four-bedroom house. You walk in, you will see very comfortable furniture. We have a pantry full of food. We have closets full of clothes. We have one closet that's filling up with little baby clothes. And we've got money in the bank. Now that's where I'm at. And when I say that, I'm not trying to justify the way that I live or recommend it. And I'm not trying to condemn it either. What I am saying is that I have to come to grips with the fact that in some ways, I live a life that is very unlike 
the life that Jesus and his first disciples lived, or even the lives that the Christians were living in Acts chapter 2. Now, this is important because when we're confronted with a passage like this, there's two temptations. The first would be to take the words of Christ and reshape them so that they fit my life. Instead of taking my life and adjusting it and reshaping it and conforming it to the words of Jesus Christ. And I have to confront that temptation. That being said, there is a story in the New Testament about a rich young ruler. And I'm sure many of you are familiar with this passage. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus and Jesus invites him to become a disciple. And he says, go and sell everything that you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come and follow me. And the rich young ruler walks away sorrowful. Now, how many of you remember what they were talking about before Jesus gave that invitation? Because this is a part of that passage that I think is overlooked. Prior to the invitation, Jesus was telling the rich young ruler that he must keep the commandments. And something very interesting happens. The rich young ruler tells Jesus, I have kept the commandments. And the Lord does not rebuke him for responding in this way. The Lord does not look at him and say, well, that's impossible. Nobody can keep the commandments. In fact, if you look at Mark's gospel, at that point, the evangelist tells us that Jesus looked on the rich young ruler and loved him. Apparently, he took his word for it. Now, does that mean that he kept the commandments perfectly? I don't think we have to take it that far. But imagine what would have happened if Jesus had said to this young man, have you kept the commandments? And he responded with something like, well, I admit it hasn't really been a high priority for me. I mean, I probably keep them about as well as most people that I know. Do you think that Jesus would have invited him and said, sell everything that you have and come and follow me? This is what George MacDonald has to say on the subject. Have you... In any sense, like that in which the youth answered the question, keep, kept the commandments? Have you, unsatisfied with the result of what keeping you have given them, and filled with the desire to be perfect, gone kneeling to the Master to learn more of the way to eternal life? Or are you so well satisfied with what you are that you have never sought eternal life, never hungered and thirsted, after the righteousness of God, the perfection of your being. If this latter be your condition, then be comforted. The master does not require of you to sell what you have and give to the poor. You follow him. You go with him to preach good tidings. You who care not for righteousness, 
you are not one whose company is desirable to the master. Be comforted, I say, he does not want you. We have to begin where we're at. If we have not been faithful in the little things, the scripture tells us that we will not be faithful in the greater things. I think that everything that I've said thus far is true, and what I say next is not meant in any way to undermine it. But I do want to go on next to say that there is also another temptation that confronts us, especially when we're dealing with the demands of discipleship and the conditions of life that a disciple must accept. And that is there's a temptation, a very serious one, to lose our focus. And what I mean by that is to forget the reality that we are completely dependent upon God in all things. You see, the beauty of the Christian religion, and yes, I will use that word religion, even though it makes some people very upset. The beauty of it, and what makes it different from other philosophies and religions, is this, that other philosophies and religions begin with you, and what you have done, and what you can do. But Christianity, the starting point for Christianity, is what God has done. That's where it starts. We love because what God has done, because God has first loved us so much that he sent his son into the world to rescue us from exile and from the slavery of sin. That is what God has done. It is finished and everything else follows from that. When I was a young man in church, and I'm sure I'm not the only one who's done this, so I'm not trying to brag about myself or anything, but I can remember being a little boy at offering time, the plate was being passed around, and I remember looking at that plate and thinking, I would really like to put something in that offering plate. And then a little light bulb came on over my head, and I realized I don't have anything to put in that offering plate. So I, I came up with the perfect plan. I'm sitting next to my dad and he's loaded. And so I tug on his coat sleeve and I say, Dad, uh, give me something. Give me something because I want to put it in that plate. And so he'd, <laughs> you know, he'd pull out some pocket change and give it to me. And I'd put it in the plate. And I really felt like I had contributed. I really did. I was very happy with that. And some people would look at that and just say it's kind of silly. Some people would mock it, say that it's childlike, it's just naive. But I, I want to tell you that that picture is a very precious and beautiful picture because it points to a very precious and beautiful reality that we can only give to God that which he has already given us. That is our reality. Now, what are the conditions of salvation that are laid out 
in Scripture. The Apostle Paul makes it very clear in his letter to the church in Rome, chapter 10, when he says, If you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that he has raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. Now that is a major life adjustment. Because who is Lord before you confess that Jesus is Lord? You are. It's... Like the two cities that St. Augustine paints for us in his brilliant book, City of God. You have Babylon, the city of destruction, and then you have the city of God. And we used to live in the city of destruction, of faithlessness and idolatry. And there I reigned as king, and I would do as I wanted. But when I confess that Jesus is 